Hello, everyone. I hope you're doing well today. Thank you for tuning in to another podcast on this epidemiological podcast. <laughs> Anyways, uh, I just wanted to share with you a talk that I gave a couple of weeks ago in Mexico City at the Law and Society Association annual conference. I was invited to form part of a panel and discuss uh, things having to do with surveillance and public health and all the legalities and ethical things that go with it. I'm very thankful to Dr. Dorit Reese who invited me to attend and it was a great experience to go back to Mexico City after I hadn't been there in 20 years and even better to get to know uh, all these people that were on the panel and all their thoughts about different types of things having to do with public health and the law. So uh, without further ado, here's my short 15-minute presentation on what I would envision to be the perfect epidemiological surveillance system. I hope you enjoy it. So um, a little bit about myself. My name is Renan Nagin. I'm a doctoral candidate at the university, at the Johns Hopkins University School of Public Health. Um, before that, I, um, I worked at a state health department doing surveillance. And uh, the surveillance that I did was simple as surveillance. And I was lucky or unlucky to be there when H1N1 broke out. And so the system that was available for uh, doing surveillance included only having physicians in the state of Maryland report how many, pa how many patients came in with influenza-like illness. That was it. So the doctor would say, I had 20 out of 100 coming in this week, and then the next week 30 out of 100. So that's how we kind of tracked the influenza-like illness. But there was no laboratory component to it. There was no additional symptomology. They just said, yeah, it looks like the flu, and that was it. So we did a, we did a few things to, to work on that and get it to be a little bit better. And then H1N1 rolled around. And when H1N1 rolled around, everybody was thinking at the CDC that it was the next pandemic was going to be from avian influenza, that it was going to come out of Asia from somebody um, having close contact with birds, and the uh, flu would adapt and become a human pathogen, and that's how the next pandemic would happen. But there were a couple of people at CDC who said, no, it's going to come from pigs, because pigs are closer to humans when it comes to um, antigens and uh, respiratory systems. and then. We're gonna, that's what's going to set it off. And some of them predicted that it was going to happen in South America. Some of them still said Asia. And here, as we know now, it happened in, out of Mexico. So um, I got to thinking, once I got to Hopkins and was working with uh, Dr. Carlos Castillo Salgado there, who used to be the uh, chief epi, epidemiologist at uh, HAPO, the Pan American Health Organization, working with him on surveillance and on creating this glo uh, global public health observatory. And so we got to throw around some ideas. And he said, well, what would be the perfect surveillance system? If you could have all the money in the world and all the technology in the world, what would it be? And so I started thinking about it, and that's where this paper originated from. It started as a blog post, and then it got turned into a paper. So surveillance is a systematic collection, analysis, and dissemination of uh, health information. So you collect health information from the public, you analyze it, and then you send it back out. And hopefully, um, the people that get it are policymakers, the public, people who are going to some, do something with that data. It's not going to just sit somewhere, so there's some action behind it because without action, all that surveillance is meaningless. So again, um, what happened during the pandemic was that the cases that were first detected in the United States originated from travelers to Mexico. They crossed over or had family who crossed over to Texas and California, and then they went to the doctor, a swab was taken from their throats and sent to the state labs, and then the, the flu was identified. And so we were off to the races after that. This was a new influenza strain, it was H1N1, it wasn't like the H1N1 that usually circulated, it was pandemic, it went around the world in a matter of weeks. But had there been a surveillance system in place 
that was sensitive enough and, and good enough, and we would have seen that Mexico's flu season that year was prolonged. It just kind of never ended. It just, everybody was sick and they kept, they kept going to the hospital or to the, the doctors. Morbidity and mortality was elevated as well, so a lot of people were getting sick, and out of those who were getting sick, a lot of them were dying. And then um, the surveillance systems for influenza at the border, they were not picking up on this. They were kind of just, for El Paso, they kind of just looked at El Paso, they didn't care about Juarez. For uh, California, they didn't, look, they didn't look at Tijuana, stuff like that. So it was kind of, it was kind of limited to the border. So the perfect system, uh, we use the acronym FAST RSVP, so that's flexible, acceptable, sensitive, timely, representative, stable, validity of data, and predictive value positive. So very quickly, the perfect surveillance system is flexible and that it can adapt to any situation. If the internet goes down, the system should still be able to be up and running and still have ways of collecting the data. Um, it should be acceptable, and that's probably one of the biggest and most important parts of it is that the people who are going to be giving us their information, the public, they should accept that this, is, this is, system is going on, and they, they roll with it, they go with it. Um, sensitive in that we want to catch the most number of cases possible, timely in that we get those, that information right away and we process it and send it out right away, representative in that we want to catch as many people uh, in the population as possible, we don't just focus on one group or one subset of a group. Um, stable, again, uh, that goes along with uh, flexibility. Stable is that it's, it's always functioning, it's nothing interferes with it. The data has to be good, uh, and there's a whole, you can write a whole set of papers about, about data and surveillance. And then that whatever the, the system tells you that, <coughs> it's possible, that it's a case, that really, that really is a case, that's the predictive value positive. So, as uh, so we're throwing around these ideas for the perfect system, we have a system that would be perfect if it collected information at all times. It was running 24-7, 365, everything, there was this data stream that was just coming in all the time. Uh, and from all the people, everybody was included in the system. Information on your health status uh, as you're sitting here would be going somewhere and being analyzed and, and, and compiled. Uh, it would be analyzed and compiled quickly. Uh, time, that goes to uh, timeliness. Uh, the information would be meaningful, so we're not just saying, oh, there's, there's a couple of people that coughed in the room, and so make that of what you want. We would actually be more informative than that. Um, the action would be followed up to see if whatever intervention was given was su substantive, if, 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 we, if um, the intervention that we did was, was gonna work, and if it wasn't working, how can we tweak it so it would work? Uh, it would adapt, so again, it goes with flexibility, and can be operated with minimal investment in any situation. So it's not too costly, and it can be, it can be run by anyone uh, any group in the world. So this is where we get into the, the what ifs. So we have wearable technology uh, with us. Uh, many of you have a cell phone and that cell phone is probably collecting information from the many sensors that are inside of it as to how many steps you walked today, uh, how many flights of, flights of stairs you took. Uh, some of us have watches and other sensors on our bodies as well that are taking heart rate measurements or um, if we go out for a jog, they, they take information on that as well. So it's kind of expanding on that idea of like, what if we had wearable technology who, that detected when we coughed or when we sneezed and then reported if that was increased, if somebody was getting sick. Um, a lot of us do selfies, so I went to the Angel of Independence and I took a selfie with it behind me. So what if the, what if the system was able to collect the, uh, information on that selfie in the phone and say, hey, um, he looks like he has uh, conjunctivitis. Uh, <laughs> it doesn't look quite right, and then that reported it somewhere. And if you get enough hits on that, you know you start kind of uh, wondering if something is going on. 
For that, you need large data storage capacity, but that is that is the, the reality now. You can buy uh, terabytes of, of data storage for a few dollars now. It's not a it's not a big deal anymore. If you remember getting a flash drive for 16 gigabytes a few years ago, that was like $100, and now now you can buy them at 7-Eleven. Um, and to analyze this large amount of data, you probably need neural networks, artificial intelligence, uh, and language recognition. One of the one of the uh, programs that Hopkins has been working on is called the Essence, the Electronic Surveillance System for the Early Notification of Community Events. <laughs> and so what they do is that when somebody goes to the hospital and, and checks into the ER, they say to the clerk at the ER, um, I had a fever for the last three days and a cough. And she or he puts it into the system, fever and a cough for three days. And then a neural network at the Jet Propulsion Laboratory looks at that information and parses it out and says, this, this looks like ILI, influenza-like <laughs> illness, or an upper respiratory illness, uh, or something of that nature. And then that information gets compiled by, uh, by the system and given to epidemiologists at the State Health Department in, in Maryland. And so it's an example of language recognition. So now imagine if we could do that for Twitter or Facebook posts. And we can see when somebody says, I feel sick, uh, are they really feeling sick or are they expressing more like, oh, this is sickening or um, this makes me sick and, and a, a revulsion. So that kind of takes a little bit of uh, language recognition technology for that. But if we could do it, uh, we could, the things that we can get out of Twitter today um, yeah, no comment. <laughs> and then there's social media, so that goes to acceptability. So would people be uh, be open to this? And you see social media, and you see some of the things that people share. And frankly, we're oversharing. But again, um, it would be we be willing would we 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 be willing to share um, those those uh, selfies so that somebody can look at it and say, well, yeah, it looks like your your eyes are a little bit red. Uh, did you spend the night out in, in Mexico City? Uh, <laughs> or are you really having uh, conjunctivitis? Uh, is this because you were in the Caribbean and you have maybe have Zika? Um, are you developing poxes on you? Like, is this, is this smallpox? Is this chickenpox? Is this measles? Things like that. And so one of the ways that we thought that the perfect system would work is that it would leverage social media so that people who would be sharing their information would be delivering this information into the system. And we would say, look, um, you know, we're using it for public health, and you're already sharing this anyways. Have you looked at some of the stuff that's on your data stream? We might as well put it to good use. And then the final thing uh, is the miniaturization of laboratory technology. So now, not only can we um, can we get our blood glucose with a little 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 thing, just prick your finger and you get your blood glucose, but uh, that kind of technology is evolving, so we can detect other diseases as well, other conditions. So imagine incorporating that into a wearable technology, where you know maybe daily the sensor can pick up on your uh, on your health status. Is your blood, white blood cell count increasing? If it's increasing, is there a, a sort of a differential there indicating a bacterial or a viral infection? And then getting that information together. And of course, I'm not a lawyer, but I did face uh, some of these obstacles when I was working in surveillance at the State Health Department of confidentiality. So there's strong confidentiality rules and regulations in the United States that say that I can't take all that information and, and just give it out to the public and say, you know, Joe over in, uh, in, in Baltimore, Maryland had a, an episode of the flu, and this is what we did. So, you know, we're going to have to deal with confidentiality when we develop the system. The acceptability, again, uh, people look at this and look at it as big brother, somebody's surveilling me, somebody's looking at my private information and they're using it. How are they using it? Can we do it in a way that says, yeah, you know, we're going to use your information, but here is our 
uh, openly how we are using it. And, um, and then there's an issue of justice as well. So do we use the information that we get from one group to benefit everybody? Um, do we get the information from that group and actually benefit that group? There's a lot of research going on, unfortunately, around the world where we, we get data from a particular group of people, but the, they, they don't reap the benefits of those data being analyzed. So we get clinical drug trials somewhere in Central America. The drug gets developed in, in the United States and it's widely used in the United States, but the people in Central America who were tested with that for that drug, they, don't, they can't afford that drug or they don't, they don't get better or any benefits from it. So we're gonna have to look at justice of the system. Access to healthcare. So once we tell somebody, yeah, you, it looks like you have the Zika, uh, Zika virus. Um, <laughs> congratulations. <laughs> Good luck with that. Um, so we're going to have to do it in a way that we can refer those people to healthcare and have um, uh, have them have good access to healthcare. Funding. It always goes without saying. Like, where's the money going to come from? Will the taxpayers be willing to pay for this? Can we all um, uh, agree that maybe this is something that should be funded? And of course, the ethical and legal concerns that I expressed. Um, do we need to pass new legislation? Do we need to pass new regulations? <coughs> what about international, speaking internationally? So the whole thing with Ebola is a good example of it, uh, et cetera. So in conclusion, the perfect system, we can do that, it's, it do it, it's attainable. We have the technology, technology is growing. We're having more wearables now. We're incorporating it into our daily lives by carrying, carrying cell phones now. And you, know, you can only imagine what will be available in the next 10, 20 years. Um, more, and most, more and more of us are sharing this information, so we're taking selfies, we're sharing it with our friends, with our, uh, with our admirers, our followers on Twitter. Um, surveillance systems are shifting from passive to active, meaning that we're not waiting for the data to come to us. The epidemiologists are going out there again, like it used to be, the shoe leather epidemiology of going out there and looking for the diseases. Now we're going out there and looking for these cases again, so it's, it's becoming a little more active again. Um, but we have to answer the questions of who has the authority to collect this information? Will this be the government, the government uh, collecting the information or will it be uh, a, a private institution that has been given, uh, entrusted with this information and how will they use it? Um, can we guarantee that the data will be used justly with everybody that, that contributed? And then finally, who owns those data? You know, in the end, the answer to that is complicated because is it the government's data? Is it the people's data? Is it a mix, et cetera? So uh, the paper's available, there's the link. I'm gonna load it up to the, to the site as well. You can follow me on Twitter, see what, what kind of things I share. Uh, at <laughs> uh, there's my blog and Facebook again, sharing. Uh, <laughs> uh, and so yeah, I think that's it for me.